This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 355, February the 5th, 1996. This evening, Paul Biddle, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and I will be discussing, first of all, the idea of house and home. Some years ago, a very interesting woman uh, who had been a realtor for some years and then worked in the loan department of a bank told me that uh, rather contradictory ideas went into people's notions of housing. She said that if a person got uh, 65 to 75 percent of what they wanted in a house, they were doing remarkably well, that no one got 100 percent, indeed not even uh, came close to it. The reason, she said, was that people had contradictory ideas about what they wanted. For example, women wanted a kitchen that had lots of space and uh, very few steps necessary. I recall knowing some years ago a woman who uh, was determined to have the ideal kitchen. What she designed in a very large and expensive house in a very wealthy area was a kitchen that was perhaps half the size of most people's homes. It had everything in it and it took endless steps to get around it which uh, she did not like. Of course she didn't take too many steps in it because her cooking was very very limited <laughs> and uh, you were lucky if you were eating there to get spaghetti at the most, the simplest things. But the point I'm making, and I digressed, was that she got what she wanted in size and was very unhappy because she had to run back and forth across a very sizable kitchen to get this and that. Our ideas about what we want are contradictory. Then, too, our ideas are contradictory because with most people, housing involves also a personal statement about what they are and how important they see themselves. So they want a house that reflects their ideas about their social status and gives them uh, a bit of extra dignity. In fact, this has gone so far that uh, many houses are more designed to make an impression than to be lived in. Ye years ago, <clears throat> I knew this family, two girls, both very intelligent, very active, a very fine man, a husband, and the wife was a woman who got her ideas for housing out of uh, various women's magazines that showed an ideal 
uh, house and nothing could be mussed up. When uh, the husband came home and picked up the paper to read it, she was hovering around him to pick up any part of the paper that he would drop on the floor or put on a coffee table because she didn't want any muss in the room. Finally, because this was getting to the girls and the husband, since the house was U-shaped, he took and enclosed the center area and made a kind of rumpus and game room of it so that the children, the two girls, and he could have some peace there. But lo and behold, she moved out there and had everything proper, and they didn't dare get anything out of line. Well, homes have become statements of uh, how we view ourselves. They are often more influenced by magazines and showrooms and uh, windows of furniture stores than anything else. Part of the idea of a home comes from the fact that for generations you had a great gap. You had on the one hand the vast number of people who were peasants, who lived in very, very simple cottages. Then you had the wealthy who lived in palatial circumstances sometimes, or in castles, rather hard living, but uh, very, very impressive, or ornate manor houses. Well, the idea in that era and the Enlightenment heightened it to the nth degree, was to make the furnishings and the interior palatial. That's about the only word you can uh, use to describe it. If you look at the kind of chairs that, say, Louis the Fourteenth had, you can understand why the custom arose of uh, a man helping a woman with her chair at the dinner table. It's an obsolete custom because the chair is no longer as heavy as those old chairs were. It took a hefty man to lift those and move them. And the whole idea of those chairs was to be impressive, magnificent. They were not comfortable. They were not intended uh, to uh, provide comfort. They were intended to be impressive. Well, a very interesting uh, book has been written uh, in uh, the past few years. In 1986, Home, A Short History of an Idea. And the author is Witold, or perhaps it's Witold, W-I-T-O-L-D, Rybzynski, R-Y-V, as in boy, C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. And uh, Rybzynski is a professor of architecture at McGill University in Canada. He has 
here analyze the history of the idea of the house and how decor, technology, and everything except comfort has marked the home. Well, first of all, the word comfort, he makes a note of that, has changed its meaning. The word comfort once meant not what it means for us, but to strengthen the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, in the New Testament. And that can be translated into more modern English as the strengthener. But using comfort in the modern sense, which is less than two centuries old, the modern house is not designed for comfort. It has... Uh, first of all, the architect who wants to sell himself and his ability as an artist. So he is given to designing houses that are secondarily for people to live in and primarily to show his abilities as an architect. As a matter of fact, the greater the architect, the less livable the house. Things by... Uh, the Bauhaus School or by Frank Lloyd Wright are ostensible masterpieces of architecture but hardly livable. And this is the reason why of late there is quite a reaction against the houses that are very, very avant-garde and modern in design. They have a very low resale value. And so uh, banks are ready, uh, much more ready, to loan money on uh, semi-Victorian housing because they know that uh, it can be resold quickly. And if they have to foreclose on a house, they want a house that can be resold. And as a result, the whole idea of housing is... Uh, a battlefield now between architects who are out to please people and are despised for producing uh, houses that are suburban houses or tract houses and that sort of thing. But they are, by and large, in spite of various weaknesses, more comfortable than the truly avant-garde housing by uh, very uh, prominent architects. Now, various forms of technology, uh, Rybzinski points out, have had a dramatic effect on housing. For example, electricity. When electricity came into the house, it immediately made houses a lot cleaner for the obvious fact that now you could see dirt everywhere in a way you couldn't with a gasoline lamp or a kerosene lamp. So that however much the housewife may have worked before and she worked harder than she does now, she now could see dirt 
and furnish the house with less items that would be dirt catchers. Also, she had a vacuum cleaner. One result has been, both because of the lower uh, birth rate and the higher visibility of everything in a room because of electricity, houses are dramatically cleaner than they've ever been before, although with less work. It was true a, a little more than a century or so ago, as uh, Rubzinski points out, that about 70%, I believe, of all working women were working in houses as servants, and they were needed because there was so much work to cleaning house, to cooking before electricity, to washing clothes, and so on. It was very difficult for a woman to handle it alone. The improvements in housing, as Rubzinski points out, came from the middle class. The middle class was interested in what we now call comfort, inconvenience, in practicality. And the upper class, with lots of uh, servants, despised this. Rosinski states somewhere, I believe, uh, how many hundreds of chamber pots there were in Versailles. And they were in continual use because there were hundreds upon hundreds of people at all times in Versailles. So think of the enormous staff they had just handling the chamber pots in Versailles. Well, the wealthy, that is, the nobility and the royalty, had the money to have servants do these things. So for quite some time there was a resistance to all these middle-class improvements that came in. And uh, I think it's uh, very, very interesting uh, that uh, they despised the innovations as they started to come in as bourgeois. Uh, he says, and I quote, gas was an urban technology. And since most people who use gas were middle class, it could be described as the first specifically bourgeois technology. This caused a curious situation, at least in England. Modern conveniences such as gaslight or bathrooms came to be seen by upper-class house owners as vulgar, and the comfort associated with these me mechanical devices as nouveau riche. In this context, one comes across derogatory references to luxury. In America, there was no such opposition and photographs of interiors show gasoliers in the palatial drawing rooms of the wealthy as well as in the modest parlors and kitchens of the middle class." Unquote. So the history of housing is a very, very interesting one, and the battle that he calls attention to there with regard to the hostility 
of the rich in England to bathrooms and modern plumbing as middle class, bourgeois, in a sense continues with our avant-garde architects. They are trained in Europe. They reflect a European architectural tradition. And as a result, they tend to look down on comfort in the home. Well, that is uh, what Rybzinski has to say about housing and home. And I'd like to uh, give you a chance now. I've talked a bit longer than usual. Would you like to lead off, Paul? Well, I'm, I'm trying to draw some sort of insight to the way people's homes have evolved here in the United States. And I, uh, I think of things that came early on, such as the Carter Grove and Governor's Mansion in Williamsburg, which were really beautifully mm -hmm. architected. Uh, and you think that at that time, many people who were working class people had dirt floors, uh, did not have any type of central heat or plumbing, uh, definitely not electricity. And what has happened to the two different ways of life? The, the way of life in the, the Carter Grove and uh, the Governor's Mansion at Williamsburg have, have come and gone, but the uh, life of the working people in the United States has improved through the centuries. And their homes reflect that improvement also. And I guess it's just their tenacity and their desire to have self-improvement and a better life. Andrew? Well, I've often wondered uh, who the first fellow was that uh, described the indoor toilet as a water closet. I had to find some sort of a euphemistic name for it since nothing existed prior to that time. <coughs> Uh, it sounds like something that was translated perhaps from a description, a literal description in some other language, but it would be interesting to trace the... the uh, I the think some of the primary innovations there came in England. Mm -hmm. There were some very inventive men there. Well, they call, uh, they call it, or have called it, the, uh, the uh, indoor toilet in ships, and sailing ships, a water mm -hmm. closet, and it's still referred that to mm -hmm. it that way in, uh, in uh, sailing vessels, even private private yachts, it's referred to as the water closet, <laughs> just for old time's sake. Um, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, there's people-driven innovations in homes, and there are market-driven innovations in homes. Um, I think we touched lightly on one prior uh, easy chair about the big open space uh, in the 1950s, uh, the big open space where there were no uh, yes. divisions or anything in the home, and this was supposed to result in more family closeness and so forth, and it made people feel very uncomfortable because there was no there was no refuge. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, humans have this need to have a refuge where they can go inside a room and close the door and be by themselves for a while. You know, whether it's to to sulk or to read or whatever, they're times when humans have to have um, uh, a situation where they can go and be alone. And uh, this 
attempt in the 1950s just uh, disregarded that that uh, basic need and uh, uh, but it was strange to see people who just embraced it because it was the new way yes. the new thing and uh, after they got their money invested in the house they couldn't wait to get out of them <laughs> they sold them and went back to more traditional uh, homes and I remember uh, uh, being evaluated by a very uh, candid uh, real estate type when uh, I was shopping for a home in Marin County uh, he wanted to know you know what we wanted and he says oh yes you're the hardwood floor type <laughs> and we realized that we fell into the conventional uh, home buyer uh, because he apparently got lots of people who wanted uh, some, you know something different and uh, would go for any kind of avant-garde uh, type of housing but there that was, a, I think, a classic instance of a market-driven thing because the builder and developer is the one who came up with that idea and it, and it didn't fly. A lot of those houses, uh, I noticed after I moved up there, had been converted. The people had done, quotes, remodeling. <laughs> and they got rid of some of that open uh, architecture on the inside. But nothing's changed. You can drive down here in the valley and uh, you'll see people who are have built present-day replicas of antebellum homes mm -hmm. uh, you know great big high columns you know uh, uh, a la uh, Jefferson's mansion yeah. and, <coughs> and I saw one guy out there putting a head to go rent uh, scaffolding because he finally realized that the only way he was going to get up there and paint this thing was he had to go rent this expensive scaffolding so he could get up there safely to paint this building. And uh, it probably occurred to him that he made a mistake. <laughs> but it's too late. He's already got his money invested in it. But it's it's fun to watch because yes. you can see, you know, people who get uh, uh, misled, uh, for want of a better term, into these uh, avant-garde or market-driven attempts to influence people as to what kind of a home they should live in then once they get in there they find they're very uncomfortable and they want something else but I guess that's what that's what makes the real estate market Andrew? I was just thinking I was uh, in an octagonal avant-garde home in Ohio a few years ago uh, in which the toilet was sitting right out in the middle of the room the upstairs. I'm telling you the truth. There were no walls around. There wasn't a bathroom. It was just right out in the middle of the room. And I thought, who would ever use that? <laughs> Somebody who's very European. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. No, I have noticed that the uh, architecture, even in uh, subdivisions and housing tracks, is becoming a little bit more traditional. I think they're beginning to realize that housing is so easily dated. Uh, you can just tell whether something was built in the 50s or the 60s. Uh, and uh, a lot of government buildings are that way. They're hopelessly dated, and there's no possible way that you could give them a facelift to, to make them other than a, an ugly box. And um, pe people don't like something that's dated, and they're, and they're turning this the country look. I don't know what it's really even called anymore, but is is extremely <coughs> popular now. 
and uh, I think people are looking for something that's of a little more endure enduring and I think the houses that are being built in the last 10 years um, have much more of a grace and an elegance and a simple beauty to them and uh, I think that's a little heartening but you were talking about how uh, the uh, uh, things that were disliked by the the rich because the common man could have them like indoor plumbing and and such well I remember reading how a lot of intellectuals were contemptuous of anything enjoyed by the masses they were contemptuous of the fact that the masses could read so they intentionally made themselves hard to understand and not make sense to the common man because they didn't want the common man to, to be able to enjoy what they wrote and uh, they had contempt for things that, that, that were now available to common man, such as canned food. We talked about that book, didn't we? Intellectual yes. and the Masses, Carrie's book, I believe. And it was, a, it was a real attempt to, to separate themselves from anything that the Masses were now enjoying because they found that contemptuous that the Masses could enjoy things and therefore they, had, they intentionally tried to separate themselves from it. So that was interesting that you made that comment about the rich in Europe. I think we need to remember there's no architectural neutrality, just like there's no neutrality anywhere else, and that certain architectural designs are the result of specific presuppositions and specific faiths. Douglas, you mentioned the open space houses. <clears throat> Not long after the war, I uh, visited someone who had uh, a great deal of money and was close to some of the avant-garde thinking. And uh, he had a house built which incorporated all the most recent ideas in housing. It uh, was a house with only one set of interior walls, that for the bathrooms. Uh, the bedrooms, uh, the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, all had walls that with the tip of a, your finger you could put into a wall and it would close off and uh, you had a vast area where you could party and uh, the whole thing was uh, amazing. It was a remarkable bit of engineering but uh, I left there feeling a little bit uh, strange. I would not like to be a guest in that house and have somebody punch uh, the bathroom, or I mean the bedroom uh, button by mistake and suddenly <laughs> leave one exposed. I do know that that evening the children were exposed in one of the bedrooms. Somebody hit the wrong thing. So this type of the, uh, housing has come and gone repeatedly. There have been schools of architecture promoting this sort of thing. And the sad fact is that uh, although the United States has been more resistant to this type of uh, idea, of late, our women's magazines have been more ready to uh, play games with their readers in terms of avant-garde housing ideas. 
And that's a sad fact because uh, these magazines have a powerful influence on their readers. And they are promoting ideas that are anti-family, basically. And their whole purpose is to make an impression so that uh, we have a, a growing problem in that these women are influenced by these publications. One of the things that we need to realize, and uh, Rybzinski does call attention to it, is the important role women have placed in the whole of the middle-class revolution in housing. When uh, the middle class began to come to the fore, the women rebelled against the idea of housing that was designed to make a statement, to oppress people, to uh, pretend to nobility and aristocracy. So their very practical bent was revolutionary and they insisted and got more practical emphases in housing. However, we have a problem now in that women, through women's magazines, uh, house and home magazines, that sort of thing, are beginning to reflect the emphasis of the aristocratic, using the term in a, with quotes, uh, architects who see themselves as avant-garde artists and who do not want to be governed by the very practical requirements of living in a house. As a result now, as far as women are concerned, they've shifted from the great middle-class tradition of comfort to decor. They want a decor that will make a statement. They want to be impressive so that just as their uh, hair has to look right in public, and there's nothing wrong with that, and as their clothing has to look exactly right, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, the house has to look exactly right at all times. And uh, I do believe this has contributed to the problem that families are having with children. Children are in the way. They mess up things. And their play can mean that a lot of things are dragged out and left out, which is not right, but they don't want them dragging their things out and playing. So that uh, you have women saying after they shake their heads at... Uh, the mess junior has created, one child is enough. And they're not tolerant Absolutely. of what That's the right. child needs. And that has been a major revolution away from the middle class revolution that women once effected. Children are... Go ahead, Doug. There, you know, there's some interesting things that have been happening in our culture in the past... 30, 40 years that 
obviously it had a big effect. Uh, something like at least half, if not more than that, of women who uh, have a home situation are working outside the home. And the men, you have a lot of role reversals going on. You have a lot of women going outside the home to work, and the men are now doing the cooking. So they're having more to say about how the kitchen is laid out and how the house is laid out. And then you've got technology-driven factors. Um, before, architects were always the ones who had the capability of, of visualizing in their mind's eye what the finished product of the home would be uh, after it was built. Uh, nowadays, in order to sell a spec-built home, a builder has to use computer-aided design so that he can furnish a visual uh, representation of what each room will look like, uh, what the traffic patterns will be inside the home. Uh, many times people can't visualize, for instance, how big a 10 by 12 room or how big a 20, 18 by 20 room is. And when they designate the particular size of a room, they really don't know from the given dimension whether it's going to be large enough to suit the activity that that room's is going to take place in that room. So uh, using computer-aided design and with uh, computer technology, uh, they're able to furnish the prospective home buyer with a, a better shot at coming up with a livable house that's going to be within their means. Mm -hmm. There's some other things like uh, Andrew mentioned the octagonal uh, house. I almost built uh, a hexagonal house years ago and I had the architectural plans drawn up and so forth and I decided against it because wherever you woke up in the house you wouldn't know which side you were on. <laughs> it was disorienting. But I found out from a builder that they are very an inefficient use of building material because uh, these homes just like geodesic domes for instance uh, use slightly more than half a sheet of plywood and then the rest of it is scrap. Mm -hmm. So it's a very inefficient and very costly method of building. So a lot of times people, when they cost out a, an unusually shaped house, they find out that it's many times more expensive for a given amount of floor space than if they went with a conventional rectangular or even a multi-structure uh, uh, multi, uh, uh, type of a home with breezeways and that sort of thing mm -hmm. if they want separation. Uh, between, for instance, a lot of pe times people will build homes where the, the, the children's quarters are separate from the main house, connected by a breezeway, so that they're isolating their children so that they figure, well, they can make all the mess they want over there as long as we keep the main part of the, the house clear. Well, of course, this divides uh, the family up. Uh, you don't have the, I don't think that you have the mm -hmm. close uh, closeness uh, that is desirable yes. in the family. Children are an inconvenience to the avant-garde, of course. I always enjoy going in homes where I see a little coat on the floor here and a little toy on the floor there. You know it's uh, a home where children are there and playing. You know, I wanted to point out, too, that uh, some of what we're talking about uh, reflects this obsession with appearance in our modern culture yes. with the resultant um, and accompanying de-emphasis on substance. For many people, the important thing is how something looks, how aesthetically pleasing it is. And of course, it's not wrong for something to be aesthetically pleasing, but there's such an emphasis on that 
This is even true in, uh, <coughs> in uh, literature, in books and magazines. There's so much obsession today with an absolutely beautiful, aesthetically pleasing appearance. Um, but as far as the content, it's not important. Appearance sells today. Appearance rather than substance sells. Um, so I think that's a factor that we, we don't want to forget. It's very unfortunate. It's seen in cosmetology. Emphasis, just such an emphasis today, of course, on cosmetics and beauty and the, the romantic youth culture, looking younger, getting rid of all the lines, you know. Mm -hmm. well, um, let me ask a rhetorical question and kick it around. Who is it that we're trying to please? Yes. Well, one of the things we've seen in recent years, and there are uh, two reasons really behind it, is that people who have lived in uh, or had lived for a few generations in a house decide to move elsewhere and upward. They knew people up and down the block. The grandparents of these people knew each other. When I visited you, uh, Andrew, the block parties were going on and uh, people had lived three and four generations in the same houses. Yes. knew each other up and down the block, would come together every year for parties. And that's disappearing. Yes. Because people want to improve on their situation. Uh, and that's very, very bad. Now, you mentioned something, uh, Douglas, and we have a good practical example of that right here in this house. Bob built this house, our Bob, who was doing the taping, and Bob designed it in terms of uh, standard lengths of lumber, so that he didn't wind up with a huge pile of firewood because two feet or four feet were cut off of this or that piece of wood. The wood came out virtually right. And he saved, at the time, uh, Bob told me it was a good $2,000. Now, that's good money. It's, it's ten times that now. Since uh, the spot, yes. Spotted Owl, you would, get, you would get sticker shock when you go down to buy a board today. Well, the subject of housing... As Rubzinski has pointed out, is the history of an idea. How do you see yourself? What is important for you? Being in the right neighborhood in terms of economic status? Or is it living comfortably? Being close to people you know and love? or to your family. All these are very important considerations. And today, we have none of this uh, considered in most housing uh, ideas by people. But uh, the fact that uh, Mark and uh, Joanna and Bob and Rebecca 
and her family are close to us makes a world of difference in living. And that's an aspect of uh, house and home that is now forgotten. Well, there's some, you know, forces in our, in the American uh, culture that uh, uh, force people, I think, to no longer place a great deal of value on where they live because right. they know they're not, they're not going to live there very long. That's right. Because uh, the average job now is three or four years. Uh, you've got uh, a highly mobile, more mobile workforce than ever before in history, perhaps in the history of the world. Uh, for so large a number of people uh, that it's impossible for many people to attach any importance to where they live at all. I mean, they, they, they'll just take any apartment, uh, any kind yes. of living accommodations that they can find close to where they work uh, because the, the practical considerations are overpowering. And that has pernicious results because you cannot develop, in many cases, strong long-term friendships because of that. And with people, if you're moving every two and three years, there's a good chance not only you won't see your family a lot, but you can't develop friendships as, of course, in the past, you tended to live by people for many years. There's a flip side to, to that, and that's how people view people who move for what they consider arbitrary reasons. Californians are notoriously despised throughout the West because they're viewed as people who sell their house for an inflated price in California move to their neck of the woods in Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, and outbid the locals on the nice properties and raise property <coughs> values and then inevitably want their California urban lifestyle brought to the country. And they're held in contempt because they're bringing in what they tried to escape from. In a lot of areas, I, I could... I'm not well-traveled, but I know the Coeur d'Alene, Hayden Lake area. I used to uh, spend some summers in some time, uh, a few years back. And it was to a little town of Hayden Lake and a, and a small town, a uh, small city of Coeur d'Alene on the edge of a lake is now a large metropolitan area. It's solid city. It extends for several miles because people from out of state decided that's a quality lifestyle and so they moved up there and now they brought all their fast food and their traffic and their congestion <laughs> and the city life to northern Idaho and they're they're not well respected for that and I think that's pretty much true in many places in the West well I recall some years ago uh, classes were given at least in one place on buying a house as an investment. A very fine woman now dead, a good friend, a, one of the finest friends I've ever had, nonetheless had similar ideas. And she told me when I moved up here that I should uh, keep uh, track of all the money and all the receipts and slips for every bit of repair on the house for the new roof for everything else because when I sold the house I would have the uh, paper to uh, lower my capital gains huh. now I, I told her as 
uh, well as I was able that I didn't intend to sell it. But I hoped even as my father and his family before him had lived over 2,000 years in one place, that uh, the Rashtunis would be here for a long, long time to come. That we didn't move because we wanted to from our previous location in the old country, and we didn't expect to move here unless we were forced to. But uh, that's an alien attitude. I think that's viewing a house as an investment. Well, is largely because some most people don't own their houses; they're deeply in debt, and, it's, right. and it's, they basically have some equity and a tax advantage to owning a house, and that's how they view it, rather than in a home. And I think in this this new talk in the presidential election of a flat tax, one of the big factors is what will it do to the housing industry? If, are they going to have a mortgage uh, deduction. deduction? And if not, what's that going to do to in the, uh, the value of your house? And that's a major factor when people consider it's not my house as a home, but it's my, it's all I have. It's my, it's it's how many years of uh, of uh, investment in it, and I need to preserve that as an investment. That's my nest egg. <coughs> Some years ago, I was in Washington D.C., and someone in Congress had proposed eliminating the uh, IRS deduction for interest, which only came about after World War II to stimulate housing. And the building industry took out a full-page ad in the local daily against that idea, even though it was not likely to have been considered too seriously. Well, and too many uh, either intended or unintended consequences of uh taxation as regards the home. A lot of people feel like they're just serfs, you know, because of the property taxes that they have to pay. Mm -hmm. They don't feel that they own the house, and that's another reason why people don't uh, have any particular attachment to the property that they yes. live in. Uh, you know, the loss of, you know, what you were alluding to earlier, the, the loss of a sense of community of staying in one place for a long period of time and having, uh, you know, two at least a couple of generations uh, clustered close by, you know, in hard times, that's an unbeatable support uh, system. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are ups and downs in everybody's life, and having a family around uh, can get you through the rough spots. And yeah. government doesn't, never looks at the the consequences of their act. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the property tax, uh, all of these taxes that they levy on homeowners, uh, seem like a good idea at the time. They're always, uh, a lot of times, they're, quotes temporary emergency measures which stay on forever uh, because once they get the money, they, they're, they're like dope addicts. They can't do without it. Once they get the money and find something to spend it on, it's irreversible. And the consequences, they never look at the long-term consequences, yet they will ask you if you want to build a home uh, you have to produce an environmental impact report. You know, what is the impact of your building a home in this particular location going to be on the environment? Yet, when they pass these laws uh, on uh, taxation and so forth, the government is not required to issue an, uh, an impact statement on what impact is this going to have on the family. Absolutely, yes. that's right. So they're asking uh, things of people that they're, they're not willing to ask of themselves. 
our civil government today practices eminent domain in so many ways. Property taxes is a, are a prime example of eminent domain in this country. If you don't pay your taxes, you'll see what they do to your house. It's just, mm -hmm. That's the proof right there. Yes. It's ironic that when the first Continental Congress met, according to uh, Dr. Dietz of John, Johns Hopkins, it sent a letter to Canada inviting them to join with them against the British. And they said, the British are following a dangerous course of taxation and may end up taxing property. Yes. We didn't have to wait for the British to do it. We did it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, Rush, and you can help us on this. I've noticed in a lot of older homes in this country that the kitchens were a lot larger on the uh, whole. The kitchens were a lot larger than they yes. are today. I think uh, you need to remember that back then a woman spent most of her day in the kitchen. She made much of her food from scratch. And uh, that was, uh, in some sense, her living quarters for the for the most of the day. Whereas today, with most women working outside the home, uh, the architectural design has conformed to that sort of cultural pattern. Yes. Uh, <coughs> while the tape was being turned over, Paul mentioned the kitchen and the house of the Amish and how it was designed. At one time, all the farm uh, families had enormous kitchens. It was where the family lived. It was their normal living room because that's where the heat was and they were economical of the heat. So they lived there, they played there. It was uh, remarkable how big some of those kitchens were. I remember a couple of them, truly enormous. And everybody spent all their time in the kitchen because the whole family was active there and it was a most congenial situation. And attached was often the a pantry and there were all sorts of canned goods uh, mm -hmm. there, whereas that's not seen very much today because of the alteration in modern culture. That's an interesting point. The pantry is gone in most homes, except this one does have one, a very fine one. And another thing that marked the early American home, the chapel. Now that was a remarkable thing. In uh, Britain, the lords would have a private chaplain in the Middle Ages and a chapel. But it was the Puritans coming over here who felt that they needed their own private chapel where either as a family or as uh, individuals they could go for prayer. And uh, these were usually near the front door. Some very old homes will still have uh, those rooms, but they've long since for a hundred years or better been converted to other uses. Well, as Morgan pointed out, uh, the Puritans considered the family a little church and the, yes. the father was, a, as it were, the minister. Uh, that idea, too, has been lost today, unfortunately, and fathers don't 
take their responsibility and obligation to lead their family in worship as they should. I think one of the things to follow up on something you said earlier, Andrew, mothers should stop apologizing when the pastor comes over or someone else and the children have their things on the floor in the living room. It's one thing to say, all right, children, uh, play elsewhere now. But to apologize oh, for that, yes. I think, is very, very wrong. Yes. Children should not be confined to their bedroom to play. It's a family. You know, we are <coughs> in danger. We have this sort of antiseptic society. And yes. cleanliness is good, but I think it's uh, taken much too far. Uh, it's uh, to be antiseptic where people are concerned. Absolutely. Get rid of them. That's exactly right. All they that hate me love death, and I yes. think that's the problem in modern culture. Well, a lot of you know people in the '60s and '70s, parents couldn't understand why their kids didn't want to come home. It wasn't a nice place to be. They yeah, weren't welcome. It there. wasn't, and they right. were conditioned to that from the time they were babies. Yes. So as soon as they had the mobility, you know, uh, kids that want a car at 16 years old, or as soon as they can get a driver's license, they want to get out. They want to go somewhere else. Uh, that's a very important point, uh, uh, Douglas. I know back in the 20s and 30s, uh, nobody had that feeling. Everybody stayed uh, at home. They enjoyed one another. It was a totally different world. Well, you know, and the the uh, uh, fallout from an antiseptic housekeeper, whether it's man or woman, uh, where you create a place that you don't feel comfortable. I mean, a house mm -hmm. is supposed to be your refuge from the the uh, That's right. you know difficulties that you face outside the home, earning a living or whatever you have to contend with. And if you can't feel comfortable in your own home as a refuge at least for a few hours a day yes. and what good is it that's the reason a lot of people don't come home that's right they they'll go you know like you have these uh, movies or these uh, situation comedies on television like cheers where people find an artificial environment that's which right. is a local tavern or a mm -hmm. bar and <coughs> the the bar patrons are their family members a surrogate yes. family and the, the bar room is a surrogate home, and they spend all their time there. And people yes. wonder, well, you know, why is that? Well, they don't either don't have a home to go to, or they don't have a home where they they feel comfortable, where they feel uh, wanted or needed, or or uh, uh, feel at ease. That's right. As I recall, in the '30s, early '30s, there was a movie. But uh, can't name the actor and actress. They were very good, excellent comedians. And uh, the woman was a nag and made the place difficult to live in. And the man would periodically pick up his newspaper and head for the bathroom, and she'd knock on the door. Are you having trouble again, dear? <laughs> or he'd pick up his hat and go out the front door. And at the time, that was regarded as very funny. I, I remember how people roared over that film. 
and they thought it was rather exaggerated, but that there were no doubt people like that. Mm -hmm. And now, everybody's out of the home. That's right. Well, our time is about up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.